Hello and welcome to the Health Centre podcast, the podcast that aims to empower listeners to take back control of their health and set a new health standard. I'm your host, Kirli, and in a world where university textbooks are outdated, together with the help of our co-host, Kristen Harvey, we aim to close the gap between researcher and reader, unpacking groundbreaking research so that everyday individuals have the information they need to achieve optimal health. Subscribe to our podcast and join us for group interviews, solo episodes and Q&As as we delve deeper into quantum and circadian health and how you can optimize your environment for best health outcomes. Hello, everyone, and thanks for coming back to the Health Centre podcast and listening to another episode. In this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Gerald Pollack and we touched on many topics from the Wi-Fi impact on exclusion zone water, fatigue, cancer, dehydrated cells, all these topics. It was just such a great conversation and I can't wait for you to listen to it. I also wanted to mention that in this episode, Dr. Pollock took a surprising twist and chatted about the lack of humanities and the, specifically the lack of, uh, I guess, humanities education that's happening in today's university systems. And our humanities isn't really something that's taught anymore and that perhaps this is contributing to the dehumanisation of humans through social media and uh, various other technologies that we have built. So I really appreciated Dr. Pollock sharing his insight on that towards the end of this uh, podcast. So make sure you stick through to the end or skip through if you don't have time and listen to that part. I think it's a really important message that needs to be uh, sent out to the general population. Well, I'm delighted, Kara. Delighted to uh, try to answer whatever questions you may have, (laughs) if I can. Thank you so much. So, Dr. Pollock, I really wanted to talk today about the fourth phase of water and perhaps um, I listened to a TED talk you did six years ago and the question you posed in that TED talk was, we get energy from food, but perhaps we also get energy from light. But before we go into talking about some of the science and some of your experiments and work, I would love for you to set the scene and, and tell us a little bit more about yourself in terms of how you got into water research and kind of what the scene for water research looks like at the time when you started moving into this field. Well, thanks. Where to start? Um, <laughs> always, it, it's always been thought that, you know, everything there is to know about water is already known because water is such a simple molecule, such a pervasive molecule uh, that for sure we, we we ought to know. And and I often start my presentations with a few slides of uh, a few things uh, that are almost impossible to explain, at least by uh, conventional standards and uh, conventional thinking. And and I think that that really does move people. For example, just one, if you drop a droplet of water onto water, you know, you expect that the two will coalesce instantly, but they don't. And, and we have some videos showing if you do exactly that, sometimes the droplets will persist on the surface for, oh, you know, 30 seconds or so before they finally coalesce. There's another one, uh, one of my my favorites, showing a trough of water with a red dye in it. And just behind it, perhaps you've seen it, just behind it is a magnet, a superconducting magnet. And you turn on the magnet and the Red Sea splits. It actually splits so that some water moves to the left and some water moves to the right. Uh, the advertisement that goes with it is that Moses could walk across the Red Sea. You know, th- those are things that are just unexplainable by conventional standards. And, you know, you ask the question, well, gee, you know, so maybe we really, do we really know everything there is to know about water? No, uh, we don't. So you start with that premise and, um, at the time I got into water, there was a conventional view that there's nothing 
special about water and um, there could be something special about water at interfaces maybe one or two molecular layers of specially ordered water but then there was this guy uh, who unfortunately passed a couple of years ago just shy of age 100 gilbert ling mm-hmm. and gilbert ling was one of three people chosen as the first cohort to come from china to study in the us they looked all over china they found the three most promising two of them won nobel prizes physics chemistry and gilbert should have won at least two nobel prizes for all his contributions his main contribution at least the one that impressed me the most was that he said that the water inside the cell is is not like this kind of water it's not liquid it it is sort of liquid but not exactly you know when you when you talk about liquid water you think about the molecules of water h2o and the molecules are randomly disposed and they're bouncing around at a furious number of times each second or even each femtosecond i mean rapidly moving around no no it's not like that he said it's like a crystal the molecules are ordered so if you think of a water molecule as like a dipole with uh, like a little bean with plus at one end minus at the other you can imagine how they would stack and and he said the current understanding that you might have one or two molecular layers that stack is wrong you may have hundreds or or even more we found hundreds of thousands in some cases that's coming later but i was so impressed we had been studying in the field of muscle contraction how how the muscle how the proteins inside the muscle cells lead to uh, contraction and i there was there was one guy in my lab who kept you know pushing me he said you ought to think about water you ought to think about water and and i i pretty much ignored him but i should have listened a little bit more, more intently because i i never took that quite seriously until i began you know a decade or two later thinking well wait a second if you read about muscle contraction in any textbook it has very nice diagrammatic pictures of how the molecules uh, arrange themselves and whatever but missing from from that picture was water you know if you think about water so we're two-thirds by volume we're two-thirds water and the muscle is not much different it's roughly two-thirds water and if you think about it in terms of the, the fraction of molecules that are water in other words you take the muscle cell or any cell and line up all the molecules and start counting one by one you count more than 99 water molecules for for every protein molecule and when you think about it it makes sense because if your muscles or any tissues are two-thirds water by volume there's a lot of volume and the water molecules are pretty small so you need to stuff a lot of them into that volume uh, to to make up that volume and and so um to think that muscles uh, which are 99 out of a out of 100 molecules of water molecules but to treat those water molecules as though they not only didn't count but didn't exist uh you know it's it's it it, it borders on mm-hmm. on uh, being nuts uh you know they're there and if they're there you can't ignore them and and, <laughs> and so that was one of many reasons why i thought something's wrong well i without going to great detail i had the good fortune to go to a a conference um, in Hungary. Um, it was a small conference, and it was to commemorate the life of a famous biophysicist. And and this guy was interested 
in two things. He's interested in muscle contraction and water. And they needed somebody to talk about muscle contraction because this guy also was a disbeliever in the standard story. So they invited me. And to represent water, they invited this Gilbert Ling and also a dozen or so other scientists who had something to say. And I listened to Gilbert Ling and I I was just so impressed by his evidence and his ideas. And then came all these other people who had evidence, additional evidence to support his point of view. Well, I was sold. And the first thing I did when I got back to Seattle was to write a book. And the problem with the Gilbert Ling stuff is, you know, Gilbert Ling was, I'd say he was a genius. Uh, Maybe that word is used too uh, lightly. Uh, But he also had a, a kind of a problem because he was he was so ingenious. He'd sit down and write write a book. And by the time I met him, I think he'd written five of them. And he'd sit down at the word processor or before that, the typewriter. He'd bat out something. He'd send it to the publisher. And that's it. The word editing, I think maybe it doesn't exist in the Chinese language. I, I'm not sure. But but it's a problem for for us uh, mortals who are not quite so brilliant as Gilbert Ling. I decided to make an attempt to rectify the situation, and I wrote the book. And I, I must admit that Gilbert Ling hated it. I would have thought he'd love it, but he hated it because I think he felt that I was stealing his thunder. Uh, actually, I was trying to present his ideas uh, in a way that people could understand. Anyway, that's how we got started. And, you know, I thought as soon as I I heard Gilbert Ling's story, I thought, this is this is incredible. This is so interesting, because if Gilbert Ling is right, then all of biology is wrong, uh, because all of biology presumes that that the water inside the cell is like this. But if it's not like that, then a lot of assumptions or a, a lot of foundational ideas are simply wrong and you can't build on them. Um, and so I was excited, and then we began doing experiments, and we, in the experiments, we confirmed that, indeed, that the water in the cell, uh, or even outside the cell, is can be different from ordinary liquid water, and it's the beginning of a, a new new biology. So maybe I should stop there, because uh, I know you've got a, a load of questions, and um, uh, anyway, we started, we found just one sentence, that Gilbert Ling's were ideas were were sort of on the right track, but we found some things that are radically different and that make a big difference in thinking about this kind of water and what is its function. Is that okay? Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think it gives us a lot of insight as to what was happening and perhaps some of the questions we should be asking. Uh, You know, water, it's not this stagnant liquid phase, we've actually found that you found in your research team and through the work of Gilbert Ling that there is this fourth phase of water. And it's nothing like the liquid crystal, um, sorry, the liquid solid or gas form that we originally thought were the only three phases. And I guess your ability to critically think and question that has led you into the line of work that you're in today. And I think that's important. So I think I'd like to start by just talking a little bit about photosynthesis and perhaps how plants, because that's quite a commonly known topic, plants use, plants, plants use light as a form of energy. Yes, plants use light as a form of energy. So the photosynthetic process is, uh, I forget how many steps, I think uh, something close to 20, but step one, step one 
is that light comes in and the light basically powers or catalyzes the water to separate into OH minus and H plus. That's step one. It's said to be 100% efficient. And then there are many other steps, but it's the first step that matters. Well, we found, um, well, uh, first of all, one question that people don't ask about this, there's something weird because you take a water molecule, it's neutral. And somehow you put in energy and it separates into minus and plus. But you and I both learned in middle school uh, that plus and minus don't want to separate. They want to stay together, right? They attract each other. And the field of photosynthesis has has never addressed that anomaly. I mean, how, what happens when they're separated? They should come immediately back together. But obviously they don't because the separation of charge is sort of like a battery. You know, you got plus and you've got minus and they're separated. But they never addressed that issue. Maybe that's a side point. Um, and it's a side point because what we found is something similar that light does in, indeed separate charge. This is part of the story of, of fourth phase uh, water. And the fourth phase is structured in such a way, it's usually negatively charged, and it's structured in, in, in such a way that this negative charge, and you've got positive charge next to it because they're they're separated. But this so-called fourth phase, or we call it exclusion zone or EZ water, is so dense that it doesn't allow those positive charges to come back in. So they stay separated. And therefore, you have a battery. And that battery is used, and, and we've shown one example published today, <laughs> uh, by the way, and a, an example of how that energy is used in our body. We all presume that our energy comes from ATP, a high-energy phosphate bond, and perhaps it does, but this is another form of energy. It's like a battery, like electrical energy, that's also used to power some processes in our life. And at this stage, nobody knows um, which one is predominant, uh, whether it's a standard uh, ATP story or whether it's this electrical charge story, which I believe is pervasive. So, but I haven't told you exactly <laughs> what is easy water, but but I'm waiting for you to ask. Um, well, perhaps that could be my next question, Dr. Pollack. What is this exclusion zone easy fourth phase of water? Okay, thank you. Well, maybe it's best if I describe how we found it. We took a chamber that had water and we suspended some little particles in the water. They're called microspheres, little spheres in water. They're commonly used in scientific studies. Then they, they're suspended in the water. And we were looking uh, for some crystal-like arrangement of water, as suggested by Gilbert Ling, because crystals are pure. And if they're pure, they don't allow anything to enter. They get rid of all the impurities that had been in the water before uh, the formation of the crystal. So we were thinking, let, let's see if we can find something that excludes these particles. We took a gel. We put the gel in the chamber with the water and microspheres. And we looked in the microscope. And right adjacent to the surface of the gel was, by molecular standards, a, a giant uh, region that had no microspheres. It excluded the microspheres. And that's, uh, we did many experiments with many kinds of surfaces, gels, polymers, and we just kept seeing this. And it grew over a period of minutes uh, to, you know, a, a sizable extent on the order of 
uh, maybe a third of a millimeter or something like that. And one of your countrymen, John Watterson, who um, is from Gold Coast area, uh, who had been in the field long ago, and we became friends, and he followed our story a bit. He said, hey, you got to give this a name. Why don't you call it exclusion zone? Because it excludes, you know, the water that sits there seems to exclude. And I thought, that's a good idea. So we called it exclusion zone. And exclusion zone, E-Z, at least in the U.S., I'm not sure in Australia whether you say E-Z or E-Z, but in some countries it's E-Z. But in the U.S., it's E-Z to remember. <laughs> and so so it worked really well uh, for us, uh, E-Z. Later, so referred to this water that's um, sort of interfacial, but very extensive as easy water. But later, when we found that this water, that every feature of this water that we examined differed from ordinary liquid water, we began to think of it as a different phase of water. And that's when we coined the term fourth phase of water. So that's the, the origin. Now, I just need to mention a couple of things about this. At first, we thought, oh, it's just water. It's got to be negative. It's got to be neutral. But when we stuck electrodes, tiny electrodes that come to a, a very fine point, invented uh, parenthetically by the same Gilbert Lee, which made it possible to look at the potential inside of cells without destroying them. You know, some people, a colorful expression um, with electrodes. If you have a big electrode and you and you penetrate a cell, you can't really expect the cell to survive. And so one of my colleague said, it's like um, like uh, sticking a telephone pole up your rear end and expecting you to behave normally. <laughs> but Gilbert invented this, this uh, uh, glass electrode that, that you can make it come to a very tiny point, stick it in the cell, measure, pull it out. Uh, so we did that, and we checked, and voila, it was negatively charged. And we've reproduced this measurement, and I believe others have too, numerous, numerous times. So if you think about it, if you start with water, it's neutral. And then you see there's a region that's negative. Well, you know, it's got to be positive, equal positive somewhere. And we found that positive to be beyond the exclusion zone, just beyond. So you got this negatively charged zone that's up against the surface of a gel or a polymer, this kind of, so we had fourth phase water, and beyond it are protons, positive charges, and usually linked to water molecules to form so-called hydronium ions. So it's like a positive charge, positively charged water molecule. And as I mentioned earlier, the structure which we've been able to deduce, the structure of this EZ, it's a, a series of sheets, each each sheet, you know, parallel sheets uh, stacked one by one, kind of like onion onion layers. And these layers uh, are hexagonal in structure, and the hexagon, the holes of the hexagon are so small that the positively charged hydronium ions can't penetrate back. So the charges are separated. And therefore, so you got negative EZ and positive here, and the positives can't come in into the EZ. And, um, and so you got a battery. And that you know, to think about water being a battery is really interesting. And we demonstrated that you can actually get current from it. We stuck one electrode in the negative EZ, another electrode in the positive region beyond, and you can light 
an LED, a light-emitting diode with it. So you really can get energy uh, from it. It it really does does work. And so finally, um, one might ask the question, uh, what powers all of this stuff? Because you can't get something for nothing. You can't start with a you know a bland a glass of water and somehow it by itself creates energy. Um, the energy, the energetic, you have to have another energetic source that somehow converts into this kind of battery-like energy. And that's where I return to photosynthesis because we found that it's light that does it. And, and particularly infrared light. Uh, the visible wavelengths don't do a whole lot, nor, uh, well, we did find something about uh, ultraviolet light at the short wavelengths. It actually increases the negative charge. But, uh, this is a very recent finding, not even published. But basically, all you need is a very small amount of infrared light. That's what converts um, this this um, the water that sits next to the surface. That's what converts it into a battery. So I think I I should stop here because you know that that's the essence of um, uh, the the so called the, the nucleus of what we found that. Uh, an energy source contained in water that's built by by light by infrared light um should i stop there i mean i, I <laughs> wow that is just so much information i think it's truly fascinating i actually heard you say one time uh how you actually came upon the infrared light actually increasing the size of the exclusion zone i think that story is quite funny Okay, uh, the story is, it was an undergraduate student that is, you know, a student uh, age 20 or something like this. And uh, at one time, I had I had 30 undergraduate students working in the lab. Now fewer, but I think someone told me from the Office of Undergraduate Research that w- this was a record number. <laughs> there were so many students who, and I spent a really large fraction of my time dealing with these undergraduates myself rather than other people in the lab supervising them because I had a whole bunch of ideas and usually you know the younger the student is the more open-minded they are Um, like kids you know they're the extreme example they're curious about everything and their curiosity gradually disappears with age but when they're undergraduates just starting their studies, they're pretty open-minded. And so some of the most important findings from our lab came from those students. So one student, he's he's working on a bench. He's got a chamber doing what I pretty much described with the microspheres and uh, some kind of material surface and water and looking at easy. And I don't know if he was bored or something else, but um, he noticed that right next to him was one of these gooseneck lamps. And he, he thought, oh, you know, I think I'll take the lamp and shine it on the chamber and see what happens. And he found something astonishing. He found out that in the region where he was shining the light, the exclusion zone grew. It grew enormously. Um, it grew, well, in subsequent experiments, we found that just a small amount of light can expand the exclusion zone by 10 times. I mean, a feeble amount of light. Well, he was doing, he was using an a old incandescent bulb which had a, a series of wavelengths uh, starting from the UV through the visible and at the long end, um, long wavelengths, infrared. And so naturally, we want to find out, or first to check to see if what he was doing was reasonable, and, and it was. It seemed to be valid. And then we looked specifically 
at a whole series of wavelengths uh, spanning the entire spectrum from UV at the short end to infrared IR at the long end. And we found all of those wavelengths had virtually no effect, but when you got to the long wavelengths to infrared, it had a powerful effect, maybe maybe almost a thousand times more powerful than, say, uh, red light or green light or something. Just a small amount was was sufficient. And so um, it was that student uh, doing what he was not supposed to do, <laughs> you know, and he, he called me into the laboratory to take a look. And, and I was astonished because, because, you know, we, I had been scratching my head. That's why I don't have much hair left. I'm scratching my head for several years trying to figure out where the hell does this energy come from? Because there's got to be some energy to do it. And, you know, in photosynthesis, um, it's light. Uh, but I, at the time, I think it really didn't cross my mind that it, it, that it might, might be light. But this student, this curious student, found that it was indeed a light. So, I mean, I asked him to turn off the light, move the lamp away, see what happens. And, and the expanded exclusion zone came right back to its default arrangement. And so we knew it was reversible. And finally, after doing more experiments, we found out that it was infrared. You know, a lot of people don't know where infrared light comes from. Uh, they know that sometimes know that, for example, the sun produces a lot of infrared light. That's why we feel warm. Uh, and they know that uh, the toaster, for example, you know, you put the bread in, you press down and you look inside and you see the coils heating up and glowing bright orange. And, you know, it's sort of commonly known that means is generating infrared energy, infrared light, we will sometimes say. But what they don't realize is that infrared light or infrared energy is coming from all over. So if we turned off all the lighting in my room, uh, I'm actually sitting at home right now, and there are too many windows to do that, but I could imagine uh, doing that completely dark. And you walked in, I greet you, um, but you're, if you want to take some videos, your cell phone wouldn't work because it was too dark. But if you had a camera with infrared sensor instead of a visible light sensor, you'd get a beautiful image of everything around me, even though it was pitch dark. Uh, because everything is generating infrared light. And, and that's why the military tends to use it for nighttime vision to see, uh, you know, where's the enemy um, and what kind of equipment do they have, et, et cetera, et cetera. So because infrared light is all around us all the time, and that's the energy that's needed to build easy water. It means um, that easy water is all around us, uh, both inside the body and outside. Okay, just one on that tack, just one, you might say, uh, issue that relates to this kind of water inside the cell. If you want to demonstrate that the water inside the cell is not liquid water, but fourth-phase water, which has a gel-like consistency, is kind of like raw egg white, for example, that, that kind of consistency. All you need to do if you're brave enough is to cut yourself. You know, you take take your arm, you take a razor blade and go like that. And so what comes out? So if the water inside the cells is liquid water, you know, like this stuff, it should come pouring out like it would come out of a breached water pipe, but it doesn't, you know, you do get blood, plenty of that, 
but you don't get water coming out. And, you know, I've spoken to some surgeons who tell me the same. They dig deeply surgically into the body and they may cut through a muscle. And if you cut through a muscle, you know, if there's water inside, you expect the water to leak out. And they said it never leaks out. And we find the same in the laboratory. We can take, for example, a muscle, which we've done, you can slice it right down the middle and the water wouldn't come out. And it's because the water is not liquid water. It's actually easy water, which is viscous and basically sticks to the solids inside the cell. Okay, let me stop there because I know you have other questions. <laughs> no, that is so fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing. And I guess these are the things that we, the foundational components of science that we just haven't questioned because we kind of read it in a textbook or we just take it as foundational and then our experiments build from those foundations. But what if the foundations weren't actually factual in the first place? And that leaves so much room for for new uh, data to emerge, I guess, if we question those original foundations. But you mentioned uh, muscle contraction earlier on in the podcast, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about exclusion zone and the effect that has on the proteins in, in the cell in terms of contracting them and folding them. Well, yeah. Okay. So I can give an example of muscle cells since we dealt with muscles for several decades. And I think we learned something about the muscles. I guess the first thing is that the prevailing theory, I believe, is wrong. And the reason, I mean, fundamentally wrong, not just a little bit wrong, but fundamentally wrong. And the reason is we performed many experiments and almost everything, every experiment we did, uh, the results of the experiments were incompatible uh, with the prevailing theory. And so I wrote a book on the subject in 1990. It's called Muscles and Molecules. And in the book, I demonstrated um, many reasons why the prevailing view doesn't fit. On the other hand, the prevailing view is pervasive. And one of the reasons it's pervasive is not that it's so beautiful or attractive or whatever. It's not, in my opinion, but it was put forth by a um, a Nobel laureate, and you know, you might say a Nobel laureate among Nobel laureates. Uh, this was he was named Sir Andrew Huxley, member of the Huxley family, the distinguished family, and um, he previously won a Nobel Prize for his work in membranes. So he was uh, even more, more distinguished than just from having come from the Huxley family. And he became president of the Royal Society and master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and. When Sir Andrew um, walked into the room, there was a hush. It was like, God has entered. Everybody was quiet, you know. And this is not a good way to be, because it means that nobody's willing to challenge him. Scary to do so, risky to do so. And if you think of a godlike figure, well, you know, you just don't challenge God, right? Because, because. So this is a problem. It's a problem in I'm mean, illustrating in the muscle field where so much evidence, so much evidence disagrees with the basics of the theory. And yet, you know, the theory is widely accepted. Almost everybody thinks that the theory or model is correct, even even though the evidence is so absolutely clearly against the theory. And this is uh, I think I'm probably deviating from the question that you asked. That's so fun. I forgot what the, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is a problem in all of science. Um, and it's a special problem in the muscle contraction field because of the, of the distinction of this person. And, you know, I myself, when I started my career, I thought, well, 
this guy is right. And someone will ask me, why is he right? Well, you know, he won the Nobel Prize, therefore he must be right. You know, and I've since learned that Nobel Prizes are are basically bestowed by a committee. And committees make mistakes all the time. And they, they sort of go with the flow. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he's right, but it's the distinction. And that happens throughout science. You know, we, we mostly uh, pay homage to the, the towering figures of science, and we presume they must be right. And it's not necessarily so. Um, at the risk of deviating from your question too much, I could, and I've started pretty much written a book that's almost finished, about think about the structure of the atom. You know, you probably, you think it's okay, right? And uh, I thought it was okay. <laughs> and I think most people thought it was okay. Um, you know, it was put forth by Niels Bohr, who won, won a Nobel Prize. And, you know, he was pretty much at the same level as Einstein. He's been in the textbooks um, for five, six generations, right? And there's no reason uh, to think that it could possibly be wrong, right? I mean, yeah. However, there are some extremely simple arguments that uh, make it virtually impossible that it can be right. And the book describes them. Let me just, I'm having fun, so it, if it's okay, let me just say it deviates from, from the topic of uh, water and water and biology, but it's, you know, it's very fundamental. So think about it. First of all, what's in the nucleus? Well, we think protons, apparently. Yeah, protons. Neutri apparently, right. So neutrons are neutral. Okay, just sort of extra baggage for some unknown reason. And protons are positive. Now, what happens if you if you try to squeeze a whole lot of positive charges together into a nucleus? Well, they repel, right? And so if they repel, you think, oh, the nucleus is going to explode, right? And mm -hmm. now, so... Yeah, positive charges are squeezed together, and all they want to do is get away from one another, so it will explode. So physicists recognize this, uh, to their credit, and they invented something called the strong force. Um, and this is known to all physicists, and it's become um, uh, one of the, the fundamental forces of nature. It's a kind of glue that holds together the nucleus to counteract the tendency to explode, you know, but there's no independent evidence for the existence of this special glue, you know, so we have to ask questions, but that's just a start. Now, here's another one. So nucleus is positive and the electrons are circling or uh, electron clouds or what have you are out there and in various uh, layers or orbitals. And so I learned and in middle school, and I think you learned also that minus and plus attract one another. So you've got negative electrons out there, and you've got this positive uh, nucleus. What prevents these electrons from collapsing onto the nucleus and bringing the dimension of the atom to zero? I see the smile. <laughs> you know, uh, there's no answer to that. And when Niels Bohr was asked about the hydrogen atom having, you know, one proton, one electron, and he was asked, uh, why why don't they just combine? He said, they just don't. Uh, in a, in a, if that's a satisfying answer, then you're okay. Then, okay, so um, 
uh, you got another point. You've got an electron that's coming into the atom, arriving, and it's going to settle at one of those orbitals. The first one contains two electrons, then eight, and so on. How does it know whether one of those orbitals is full or not full? You know, who who tells it? And and why must it reside in one of the orbitals when a more natural place would be between the orbitals uh, because there's less negativity there? Okay, I've just given you a sample of a sample of fundamentals um, that we presume has been in the textbook for five or six generations. We presume everything is okay, but I think it's not okay, and we need to look elsewhere for for an understanding uh, of the structure of the atom that's different from what we all tend to believe. Which leads to the bigger question, you know, it's not just the atom, it's every every field of science. If you know, if you come upon if you come upon something in the textbook and you have to scratch your head to figure out how exactly does this work? It's not so clear, you know, you have to twist your arm around and and bend and contort in order to really understand what they're getting at. I used to think I was too stupid to understand and everybody else understood. And I've come to realize that, although I might be too stupid to understand, uh, but also it's possible that it might be wrong, because all of these all of these foundational concepts uh, come from the brain of mortals. You know, they, they eat the same food, they pee in the same toilet, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they're human, you know, and humans err. So we don't know that these ideas are correct. And I know I'm deviating from whatever it was that your, your question was, but <laughs> so important, so important that we get the fundamentals right. Because if you don't have a secure foundation, like, for example, the atomic the structure of the atom, uh, whatever you build on that uh, incorrect foundation is going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll be coming up with impossibly complex ideas to explain simple phenomena simply because the foundation is not correct. It's an old idea, so-called Occam's razor. Uh, if you're familiar, it came uh, the idea of simplicity came from a was it I think 12th century uh, theologian uh, named Ock- Sir William of Occam, and he was trying to cope with the existence of God. Does God exist or doesn't God exist? And and he famously, what's now called Occam's razor, he came to the conclusion that he didn't know which one was right, but probably the simplest hypothesis that it's either God exists or God doesn't, whichever hypothesis is simpler is probably the one that's correct. And then a few centuries later, Isaac Newton thought, hey, this is a cool idea. Um, so he picked up the idea and he said, my goodness, this is this should apply to science as well. And from the time of Newton, uh, how many, four or five hundred years ago, and from the time onward uh, for centuries, scientists used that principle. They thought the simplest hypothesis is going to be the correct one. That changed about a hundred years ago with the advent of quantum mechanics and quantum electrodynamics and such which is basically abstract mathematics. And, you know, almost the whole world um, believes that these concepts are correct, and they're too complicated for us mortals to understand, so we sort of leave it to the physicists who are 
you know, innately brilliant to figure out all the details. We accept that it might be right. But it might be, but it might not be. It doesn't certainly doesn't conform to Occam's razor principle or or to the sort of natural concept that Mother Nature operates in a really simple way, not in a complicated way. Anyway, I think I'll finish my speech because I'm deviating too much from whatever it is or was was the question that you asked. I can't remember. Okay, I think I'll go back to that question in a second. I wanted to ask your opinion since you've brought up this topic. Why, since there is a whole host of, you know, these different theories and even studies that are published um, that deviate from the mainstream narrative of whatever it may be in science and medicine, why do you think, what's the determining factor of what gets normalized as like what goes down the wayside? Well, I think there are two, uh, a couple of issues. And please remind me if I dwell on the first one that there's a second one. Uh, the first one is is the textbooks. Um, if you're the publisher of a, of a textbook, your prime goal is to sell textbooks, right? Now, if you're the author of a textbook and you kind of like the idea, maybe you're writing a little bit about atomic structure and you kind of like the idea that maybe there's a, a different atomic structure that's different from what we read. And the author, hey, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about this. I'd like to write a chapter on that and include it in my book. And the publisher says, no way, because if you include it in your book, nobody's going to want to buy the book because the publishers will sell books to institutions. And the institutions uh, like University of Washington, where I dwell, the instructors don't want textbooks that, that have radical ideas. They feel more comfortable with a textbook that espouses the standard idea. Their students need to learn the standard conventional ideas because they need to pass exams in the future. So it, it gets stuck there, and and new ideas uh, don't get into the textbooks. That's one issue. The second one has to do with the uh, structure of the scientific enterprise. So let's say, example, um, suppose suppose you have an idea that deviates from mainstream. Everybody around you knows that the Earth is flat. I can look out my window and I see a lake out there and, you know, it's pretty obviously flat. So I, I would think the earth is flat. But you, um, being clever, uh, you have an idea that, you know, maybe the earth is not flat. Maybe it's a sphere. Maybe it's round. Um, because of a couple of reasons, which scientists call, quote, preliminary data. The first is you've seen satellite photos and, you know, it's not one, but many of these photos and photos from the moon and whatever show that there's a curvature. And you say, you think, well, you know, that seems to be pretty compelling evidence, even before AI might distort it in some way. And then secondarily, you ventured from Gold Coast, you you took off and you flew um, northeast to Seattle and we had a nice dinner together. And then you flew to New York and you kept flying east and then finally south again, back to Gold Coast. And you look out the window and you're looking if the earth is flat. You know, how you can get back to where you started, <laughs> right? You can't do that, but you're able to do that. So so you take these uh, pieces of inf information and you decide, this is really important. I'm going to try to get a grant to study this because... If the earth is round, so many things, even though all my colleagues know that it's flat, 
But if the earth is round, it makes a big difference. So you write a proposal to get money, to get grant. And in, in this country, it would be the, either the National Science Foundation or the, if it's health-related, it's the National Institutes of Health. I'm not sure what it is in Australia. But you prepare a proposal, and and you spend a lot of time doing it, and you're careful to cite the evidence in a way that's com- clear and compelling, and you submit it to the agency. So the gatekeeper receives it and reads it and says, hmm, Kara, she produced this really interesting stuff. And, you know, I never heard of her. And I don't know if she, if she's a quack or a freak or or this is really serious stuff. I'm, I'm not sure. So I have to do my job properly. And I I better get the true experts in the shape of the earth to look at this and, you know, tell us, uh, is this nonsense or is it the most promising thing that's come along in generations? So who do they recruit? Well, they recruit the experts in the flat earth, in the leaders in the field of flat earth, because that's all there are. And your chances of getting money to do what you want to do, I wouldn't say zero, but approach zero. And uh, because you're threatening the prominence of these people, and they don't like to be threatened. And so, although they they like to think uh, that they're honest and such, um, if they sit in front of the panel and and start talking about your application, uh, everybody's going to want to, they're all experts, you know, they all want you to not get funded because you're too threatening uh, to them. This reviewer, who's the main reviewer of your proposal, if by chance he's or she has uh, really likes your proposal, then what's going to happen is the people sitting around the review table are going to ask that chief reviewer, well, how does she explain X and how does she explain Y? And that reviewer has to be on his or her toes to be able to answer properly and with authority. But all this stuff is new to that person. They can't possibly, and they're busy, they can't possibly be experts. So it takes someone with real guts and open-mindedness to champion a proposal like this. And not too many of us fall into that category. So your chances of getting funded for your radical idea, almost zero. And I think, you know, most scientists know that. And so in order to get money, and in some cases, that money goes to their salary and puts bread on the table, you know, if they want to have to feed their family, they know that it's pretty risky to propose something as radical as what we're we're talking about. So you multiply this by um, every field of science, and you soon come to the conclusion it just doesn't work. You know, the scientific system is set up in a way that if you propose a radical idea, it will be your competitors who review it. And that's simply, you know, it, uh, think of a jury trial. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It should be even-handed in some way. And I'll, I'll just end this. We have So we have a problem, a problem with getting grants to support these ideas, and also the ideas getting into the textbooks. And they both work equally, you know, against new ideas surfacing and, and getting to be discussed. I'll just say at the tail end, we have a um, an organization that we developed, or I developed, It's called the Institute for Venture Science. And it's built around funding promising ideas that challenge conventional wisdom. And we have a scheme that we think will work and that can promote 
ideas that that have genuine promise that are very thoroughly reviewed so they're not crackpot ideas but they have real promise and we're we're looking in, uh, for uh, money uh, private money to uh, fund this operation and anybody who's interested it's uh, ivscience.org org IV link, I'll link that in the in the description for anyone thank you. to make a donation. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so I've given a long speech, and I'm sorry for that. That's I, okay. I, I appreciate it. I just wanted to say. I just wanted to say that I respect your work so much because it is hard to stand up for what you believe in and push forward through the science. You mentioned off camera that your colleagues think you're a little bit crazy, and you still continue to do the work that you do and write the textbooks you do so that people like myself can read them. And I really appreciate that. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, local colleagues are not enthusiastic about our work. <laughs> it's on their toes. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yeah. I'll jump back to my original question now. I really appreciate that tangent, though. It was well needed. Um, I was asking a question about uh, muscle contraction, and I wanted to talk about the exclusion zone water and that buildup of negative charge inside the cell and the effect this has on the proteins. <laughs> Uh, within them. Oh, okay. The effect on the protein as well. So every protein um, is surrounded by some kind of interfacial water. And, and you know, we think the interfacial water is the same as fourth phase water. And so, um, so that means that the muscle cell, like other cells, that the proteins in the cell are surrounded by fourth phase easy water. And it goes beyond that because, um, uh, if there if there are uh, listeners to your podcast who know something about biology, they'll know that, or they may know that the electrical potential of the cell um, has nothing to do with the water. It has to do with the membrane pumps and channels. And I've argued that in various places that that idea is bankrupt. Uh, and, you know, I realize that it it's accepted by virtually everybody and even the pharmaceutical companies talk about well calcium channel blockers or what what have you uh, they use that in in their uh, understanding of how the drugs might work etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know just one one argument about about that you know if you the cell is like a gel in inside we discussed that and it's got a membrane around it. And if you stick an electrode into the cell, you get a negative electrical potential, minus 50 to minus 100 millivolts. But if you take the gel alone without the membrane, and therefore without pumps or channels, you get the same result. Now, <laughs> if that's the case, it's kind of hard to argue that this negative electrical potential arises from the membrane and not the gel-like cytoplasm. But that's just one of other considerations that are, you might say, more, more scientific. So in the cell, um, because the proteins, um, generally hydrophilic surfaces, which build easy water, you've got a cell that's filled with proteins in the muscle, it's a muscle proteins, actin, myosin, and a whole a bunch of other proteins. These are all surrounded by easy water. And that's the reason that the cell has negative charge. But if you think about it, cell can't do much in a situation like that, it's kind of static. You know, the, the proteins are in their extended state and the water is in a structured state, easy water. It's almost like ice. It doesn't, you know, it's can't do much. And so in order for the cell to do its job, there needs to be a transition. And in the Cells, Gels, Engines of Life a book, the second half of the book is devoted 
to presenting the evidence that in in many cell types and perhaps all uh of course we'd never examined all but so i can't argue but uh in 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 most many most of the fundamental processes of things that go on in cell what happens is there's a so-called phase transition so you start in the quiescent state with um proteins that are in their um, extended or elongated state with easy water and then there's a transition from that state to a state where the water has undergone change it undergoes a change from from uh, the easy state to ordinary water and that's when things can happen inside the cell right uh, and then after the action is over you know after the fra- the frog leaps to catch the fly got to go back to the original state and so this kind of uh, ordered uh, or um, liquid water has to make the transition back uh, to the ordered state and that's the energy requiring state so in the, in the muscle if you don't have enough energy to bring it back you got a muscle cramp everything is is cramped up and it, it it's only if you allow time to regain the energy or a, a few other maneuvers you can get back to the relaxed instead of the cramped contracted uh state so now something that that has arisen uh, more recently is if you think about the electrical uh aspects that happen so, some of your um, uh, listeners or viewers will know about action potentials so you know action potential is something that occurs before the the event in the muscle contraction you get an action potential and subsequent to the action but that's a change of electric electrical potential a rapid change you get the action occurring um it it recently occurred that it fits so naturally with the easy idea because you're starting uh, at a negative electrical potential which corresponds of course to the ordered easy water which has a negative electrical potential but as that water changes the ordered easy water to ordinary liquid water it, it loses that negativity um, and so the ele- measured electrical potential will go from minus whatever to zero and then back again. And so w- what I'm trying to explain, and maybe not so successfully, is that the action potential was thought to be the trigger for all events um, that occur. It's thought to be a separate event. I think it's not a separate event. The two are actually tied together in the same phenomenon. There's got to be an electrical change that corresponds to this phase transition. I feel satisfied that by that kind of argument because it, it's always been confusing. You know, you have two processes. One is the electrical trigger and the other is the action. But the two of them are tied up into the same same event, which I think is simplifying and satisfying. I think that's really I, fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, I hope I've answered your question that easy water surrounds um, all of the proteins. And that's why the cell is filled with, with negatively charged easy water. Mm-hmm. And it's help me if I'm wrong here, but so when this easy water is structured inside the cell, it's kind of expanded and it's creating pressure. And so it folds these proteins inside the cell. Is that correct? When you say follows these, did you say follows it, these? It proteins? folds them, like kind of changes proteins. Well, it's not exactly that it exerts pressure, but it's that 
the charges on the surface need to match the charges uh, or match oppositely the charges of the first layer of easy water. Mm -hmm. And to do that, uh, the proteins actually stretch out. But when that constraint is relieved, then the proteins can follow their natural tendency to kind of contort and do... Okay, yeah. So they got that back to front. It's the absence of the easy in which they can contort and then the easy causes... Yes, right, right. So we know that this this IR light expands the easy water, as does other light that you found, but the red light, the infrared light, is what does it the most. And so for me, from a clinical perspective, knowing that the IR light is most prominent in the mornings, that if you're an individual, let's say 500 years ago and you're waking up and you're around natural lighting, that when you wake up, that's kind of nature's natural way of, you know, increasing our energy storage capacity. It's it's expanding this exclusion zone water inside our body because that's when the the IR light is prominent, except for today's society, like we sleep in inside and we're living inside. So we're not as exposed to much infrared light as we once were. Do you think that the introduction of perhaps artificial lighting and living indoors um, is causing, I guess, negative impact on this exclusion zone water in our body and that it's possibly affecting our health? Yes. Um, and a good example of that is a friend of mine who lives near you, near Gold Coast, who um, was suffering from cancer. And he went to the Yucatan uh, Peninsula exposing himself in the morning and the evening to sunlight and cured himself in a matter of a year, a year and a half. And he's completely cured. Um, and sunlight was, of course, there were there were other issues, but the sunlight was part of it. And, you know, that leads me, to, when you think about pathologies, especially cancer, cancer has been an issue, as obviously you, you know, and, and there have been some progress, but, you know, by and large, it's still the a huge problem. And I've just submitted a manuscript to a journal arguing that the water, intracellular water is directly linked to cancer. And if I may, you know, well, so one of the things about pathologies is in order to function, you know, I've, I've explained to you about the proteins that are folding and folding proteins are necessary for function. But in order for this fold to occur, you need Inside the cell, you need easy water to begin with. And if you don't have easy water to begin with, the cells can't function. They're dysfunctional or even pathological. So you need that. Long ago, about 50 years ago, a prominent researcher um, named Clarence Cohn uh, was interested in cancer cells. What makes them divide? You know, cancer cell tumors build because cells keep dividing. Cancer cells keep dividing. And he... He came to the conclusion um, by doing many experiments that ordinary cells uh, will divide, uh, undergo mitosis, if the electrical potential uh, goes from minus 50 or minus 100 down to near zero and stays there for some period of time, then the cell gets the signal, okay, it's time to divide. Now you look at cancer cells and their electrical potential instead of being minus 50 to minus 100, it's like minus 10 or minus 15 or something, even some cancer cells even closer to zero. Um, and, And the cells stay that way. And so his conclusion was that cancer cells divide because their electrical potential, they keep dividing because their electrical potential is very low. Now, why is it low? So 
if you follow the argument that I posed a moment ago, that the electrical potential is due to easy water, it means the cancer cells don't have much easy water. Um, and so, and if you look uh, structurally at cancer cells, many, most cancer cells, they're kind of empty. You know, they have scattered organelles and organelles that are not particularly uh, uh, functional. So don't, they don't have the nucleating sites that we discussed a few minutes ago of the proteins to build easy water. And therefore the water, large spaces are filled with bulk water. And studies have shown that the water in cancer cells is different from the water in ordinary cells. So I am hypothesizing that the, um, you might say that the ultimate event in, in cancer cells is a lack of easy water. And that's what makes the cells pathological, and that's why they keep they keep dividing. And if that's true, and you know, I, I present the arguments for it in the manuscript. If it's true, then it's sort of an obvious route to dealing uh, the therapeutic measures are to build easy water, and and there are you know like. Uh, almost a dozen different ways that you can build easy water. One of them being sunshine, because sunshine comes with a, a lot of infrared energy, and infrared energy builds easy water. Another way is to um, do this, uh, take some water and drink it. And uh, if you drink the water, some of that water will go into building uh, easy water. And there are a whole list of things that you can do that are not very complicated, that if the hypothesis is on, on target, that you can treat cancer uh, by building easy water. I'm not a clinician, and I can't rightfully argue that if you have cancer, that you should drink a lot of water. But at least hypothetically, from everything we've learned in the laboratory, I think this would be a profitable direction to hear it. And I've come across some clinicians also, like... I met a clinician um, from in Germany when I was was there visiting, and he was telling me, he wanted to tell me because he just heard my lecture. He said he's treating young women with cancer somewhere on their on their face. They don't want to have surgery because that will disfigure them, and so he treated them with infrared light. And he said it's remarkable the cancer just disappears with these treatments um, of infrared light. And you know, I was. <laughs> I was amazed to hear it, but it, I guess it didn't surprise me that that would uh, would be the case. But it, it was before I sort of came to realize when a few things came together to realize that um, that cancer may indeed that the ultimate the ultimate cause could be a reduction in the amount of easy water that that could lead to all what that that we see of cancer. Now, obviously, I can't be sure that's that's correct, but it seems to fit the evidence. And so I'm excited about it. Something that happened to me at university as well, which I spoke on a little bit on that podcast episode, but I was learning about apoptosis, autophagy, all our inbuilt cell repair mechanisms in university. And uh, my lecturer, he said that, you know, these are what stop tumors from growing and occurring in the first place, you know, because we get rid of bad cells and delete them or repair them before they have a chance to replicate, I guess. And I asked him, I said, like, what, what stops these processes from happening? And he said, well, we just don't know. If you knew that, then we would have the cure for cancer. And Jack Cruz posted a, a very interesting idea. And it's that 
the introduction of artificial lighting, it ruins our melatonin levels, which governs apoptosis and autophagy in our body. And so even though we're eating toxins and we have all these problems with our environment and we're eating chemicals and all these things, that shouldn't matter if we can still repair and delete bad cells. But with the introduction of artificial lighting at nighttime, we're no longer able to do that every single night as we're meant to. And so I think that's very, very interesting alongside what you've just said about the lack of infrared light and the lack of easy water causing causing the degradation of fat. Very interesting stuff. And I guess it makes sense because um, osteopaths for years, especially in my area, they've been using red light to treat athletes' pain around joint pain and things like this. And obviously that's building that exclusion zone, which is alleviating that pressure of the cartilage rubbing on each other, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, cartilage, yeah, in normal cells, the, the cartilaginous surfaces actually never do uh, touch one another. You know, if you've got a bone here and a bone here and you exert pressure, the evidence has shown that, you know, you've got one cartilaginous surface on top and one on bottom and the synovial fluid in between, and they never actually touch. And one of the reasons I think they never actually touch is that if you've got EZ there, uh, in between and the synovial fluid, and you've got protons, and, and the protons, um, the protons repel each other. And it, it may be that if you have a high concentration of protons in between those cartilaginous surfaces, they repel. And if you try to squeeze them together, um, they don't want to be squeezed together. And therefore, the two cartilaginous surfaces don't necessarily uh, touch each other. And regarding Jack Cruz's idea, I have no expertise on that, but you know it it makes sense um, as his ideas often do. <laughs> they often do make a lot so, of sense, and I think that's what you were speaking about earlier on is the law of simplicity. I feel like some of these ideas are, are so simple. It's just about, I guess, I don't know. I'm not going to go that really, but some of these ideas as to curing some illnesses or perhaps why they occur is just so simple that some people just can't fathom to believe that that could be the answer. Well, I think the reason is that, or just to amplify on that, um, you know, if you spend 50 years and you can't solve a problem, the usual conclusion is the problem is too complicated to solve. But another point is you're not looking in the right place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's another possibility. I actually presented my cancer idea to um, a colleague who deals in cancer, and he's an open-minded guy, and he's been very... Uh, successful u- using alternative means dealing with cancer. And I explained to him my idea. And he said, you know, Jerry, um, it's too simple. Cancer is very complicated. And your idea is just too simple. And, you know, I thought about that because I have great respect for, for this this person. And I, I think that that's a common perception, if not uh, misconception, you know, you have to look in the right place to find that. And the ultimate answer could possibly be simple. But if you're looking in the wrong place, you'll never find it. And so I guess that's that's another another message. Um, you know, sometimes I run into budding scientists, uh, students who want to go into academia. And, and those are the ideas that I, you know, pr- uh, present to them. I've been doing science for quite a few years, and therefore I guess I've earned uh, the license to... Um, pontificate about stuff, if you will. And I, you know, it's just um, uh, mostly that what you read in the textbook, don't believe it's necessarily true. And nature is simple. And those are two kind of, uh, kind of uh, basic uh, precepts or concepts that 
I try to teach to my young colleagues because I think they're important. I love what you said earlier on about uh, off camera. You said, I tell my students, you should question every single thing that you read in the textbook and don't automatically assume that it's. <laughs> well, yeah. And for some of the reasons that we discussed a few moments ago, they may well be wrong. You know, so many of them uh, may be wrong. We'll suffer from that issue of presuming that something that's been in the textbook for a long time got to be right. Mm-hmm. It may be wrong. And, and that's more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, critically exactly. thinking. Uh, more important to go delve deeply at those foundational issues than to assume they're right and and deal with uh, higher higher level issues. Um, you know, maybe wasting your time. <laughs> as well. <laughs> exactly. So I have some questions that are a bit, I guess, easier to answer. Uh, I'm just very aware of your time. I appreciate <laughs> being here. <laughs> Um, so in regards to your experiments, I'm very curious. So if you have put this this infrared light on this water and you said that uh, other frequencies of light, they kind of do different things, but none of them expands the exclusion zone like red light, have you done any experiments where you've used the red light but then you've gone and applied, like let's say if we're looking at nature's cycles, uh, the different spectrums that come after IR that's most prominent in the morning on, onto that uh, water? So have you you know, imprinted that water with the IR and then gone and exposed it to UV. Have you seen an effect there? Uh, well, we didn't do exactly that experiment, but very recently we've studied UV because um, we, we know that actually EZ water absorbs uh, UV. We, we started thinking, especially at a wavelength of around 270 nanometers. In fact, we use that as an indication that that easy water is present. If if the water absorbs at that wavelength, uh, the stronger the absorption, the more easy is contained in, in the sample. But we began thinking, well, you know, if the UV is absorbed by the water, what's it doing? It must be doing something, uh, you know. And so we did experiments on that, and we found, uh, indeed, it does do something. Uh, it actually builds um, negative charge in easy water. So, you know, you start with some modest amount of uh, easy charge, you you turn on the UV and the the charge increases. So it's pretty interesting because it it means that if you're out in UV, if the negative charge of easy water, you know, battery-like effect is important, you're really charging the battery. You're not expanding the easy, but you're charging the battery. So... Um, it's important, yeah, and and receiving receiving UV is important uh, too. And I I must admit I I wasn't aware of the difference in UV content uh, uh, morning versus evening, or or uh, you said it's IR content and morning versus evening light. Could you maybe tell me about it's, that? It's just most prominent in the morning, the IR, um, especially first light to sunrise, and then sunrise and sunset, and then. Yeah, I know that there's no blue light in our environment at sunset at all, um, except for if you have artificial lighting around you, then you have blue light in your environment. And so, yeah, I'm just more so interested, like as you're explaining to me now, just the effect that if we take nature's natural light cycles, so the sun, the frequencies that it gives off and that unique blend because they change throughout the day, they're not just the same all day long. In the morning, and we see what effect that has on this water, and then we take like that next frequency and then put that on there because it's not just about the light frequencies and what they do to the water, but it's like the order 
that it actually appears onto that water. I think that's so interesting for me. Yeah, well, I I haven't thought about that at all, except it reminds me that I heard that cancer clinics in Japan, that they, they put the cancer patients next to a window that receives morning light. You know, based on, on what you said, I I can see that uh, that expedient makes sense because if they're receiving um, uh, a lot of infrared light, uh, that goes to building easy water, which I believe is important uh, for these cancer cells. So there's a smile on my face because it fits together. <laughs> Maybe I've sparked yeah. something and you can think about well, I, a little bit more. Well, yeah, we, we plan to study it, but... You know, we're we're actually there are so many things that we 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 want to study, and we're limited by funding because um, for the reasons that we discussed a while back. You know, any concept that runs against mainstream views has a hard time getting money, and so we're perpetually short of money. We we have some that we're dealing with from a foundation, but we need a whole lot more. It was easier uh, when our stuff was there was a less prominent than. It's become it's funny mm-hmm. paradox, but um, a lot of people who are um, you know in, involved in the funding of stuff like that, um, there are, some of them are resistant um, to these new radical ideas, and so so it's hard to get money to do the studies of the kind that you're you're talking about. Mm-hmm. We're trying. <laughs> have you looked, or do you have any thoughts? And you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but. The effect of non-native EMFs, so I guess radiation that comes from our phone or laptops or things like this, has on the water in our in our body. Uh, yeah, well, um, so I'm sitting with my laptop, sitting on my lap, but I I have an insulating surface, and and I just ordered a surface from someone who makes these um, particular blockers of of such. So um, I've heard and read. Uh, enough about this uh i maybe i don't know if you've seen the book by arthur furstenberg um who talks about um advances in shall we say electricity and um in an almost encyclopedic way because the evidence is so voluminous he he argues that whenever there was an advance in electricity a pandemic followed and then gradually disappeared every time. Um, so, you know, we obviously need to think about this as evidence. I One of the pieces of evidence I, I remember is that, you know, electricity came to rural areas in the U.S. around the 1930s or 1940s. They, they didn't have it before. And as soon as it came, uh, pandemics arose and the, the number of deaths increased. And and he demonstrated so many examples of this in different regions of the country where this happened. And and so you got to think twice about uh, really whether whether there's a cause and effect. We did some experiments with exclusion zones. We put a router right near the exclusion zone. And when we turned on the router, the exclusion zone uh, diminished. Uh, we wanted to publish the paper. <laughs> oh, you're impressed by that? <laughs> um, yeah. It's scary. Uh, we wanted to publish a paper on that, but the student who did the experiments simply disappeared from the face of the earth, and I've not been able to to contact him for whatever reason. And so I'm a little reluctant to pursue publication um, without 
him to uh, answer a few questions and and such, um, you know. So anyway, more experiments like that need to be done, and we we would like to do them, but um, you know, <laughs> it costs about one hundred thousand U.S. dollars to hire to uh, either a postdoctoral fellow or a graduate student to do the work. And so you need the funds in order to pay the people to do the work. It, you, it's almost impossible to get around that. So the experiments we'd love to do um, were kind of limited by li limited funding. I, I'm kind of making an apology for it because there's so much to do. Uh, but, you know, we can do only so much. You can only uh, do everything that you can possibly do and you're leading the way in this area. So I think that's enough. It's other people need to come in and support the work. And I hope that that happens for you in the future, because I would love to see these experiments being done and these studies be published. I think it's such an important contribution to science. And just from the ideas that have been floated around today, perhaps they're, as you would say, quack, perhaps they're not, but finding that out is definitely worthwhile if, if, if they aren't quack and they actually are factual. So yeah, I applaud you for that. Um, now, my last question is, and yeah, I can't wait to ask you this, but have you done any experiments on deuterium-depleted water? I've heard so many people say they would love to have your work studied on deuterium-depleted water, but is that a problem with lack of funding as well? Yes, it's a problem with lack of funding because we need somebody to carry out the experiments. Um, yeah, I've heard enough about deuterium-depleted water from a whole lot of people. Uh, it seems to um, to work very well. and. You know, uh, I guess the possibility is that it has some impact on easy water. When when you use, it's possible when you, you uh, when you build easy with deuterium depleted water, could be that easy is bigger. Could be that it has more negative charge. I don't know because we've not done the experiments, but we'd like to do the experiments. Uh, but you know, it's it, it just can't do them without without the personnel. There are so many areas um, um, that uh, this actually leads to areas not only in health but in uh, for example um, I'm writing a book now uh, I'm two of my books are awaiting the artwork from my son who's the artist who's a terrifically talented guy but he's been busy remodeling his home so they're waiting but I started a third book about volcanoes and earthquakes nobody knows um, you know where the energy comes from there are a few speculations but I think I think it's associated with easy water and with the protons that are generated as easy water forms beneath beneath the earth. And those protons build pressure. Uh, they repel each other. And when the pressure gets to be high enough, boom. Um, and I, there are various arguments uh, that I have to, to, to strengthen the view that that may be occurring. But again, you know, this is something that's so basic to nature and, and unknown. Uh, and it's amazing that it's unknown because people have been experiencing volcanoes and earthquakes forever. Mm -hmm. And yet in modern science, we still still don't know. So there's there's so much. I'm just giving you that as uh, as one example. There are other other examples of pra pra so-called practical sequelae that come from it, like we're able to get electricity from water and light. And we're able to um, uh, build uh, so-called filterless filter, where you don't have, it's a filter device, but you don't have a physical filter. The filtration, you put water in, and that water may contain contaminants, 
and um, our, our device produces very simply uh, easy water and you collect the easy water and it's exclusion zone. It doesn't contain, <laughs> um, it excludes those contaminants. So you just are able to collect the easy water and you have a filter. Uh, no moving parts or no extraneous parts, just put the water in and the whole thing is powered uh, powered by ambient light and you get clean water out. And we've been working on developing it. Again, you know, limitations are money. And desalination is another. It's possible to use similar technique to remove the salt from the water. Imagine taking ocean water, um, producing drinking water without energy, without putting in energy except whatever is in, in nature. Um, you know, you can do it now, but reverse osmosis is the method of choice, and it requires huge amounts of input energy uh, to do it. So, so I'm just giving you a few examples of the things that that could be agenda, and and a whole bunch of other fundamental. Not these are technological, but fundamental scientific ideas that that needed to be pursued. And uh, some people are beginning to pick up some of these ideas and pursuing them. Uh, I think um, we would love to pursue them because we have years of experience working with this sort of thing, and we think we can do it expediently. But all of that is is limited by funding, unfortunately. So there's where we stand. <laughs> and um, thank you for your understanding of that. No, that's okay. I can. You have just so much passion in you, and you love what you do, and I can see that it shows. And it must be quite frustrating for you to be limited by the funding, which is very unfortunate. But unfortunately, yeah. It, it is frustrating. And I spend a good deal of my time uh, trying to secure funding. But, um, well, I, I, I should stop there. <laughs> I, I don't I don't mean to make this a, a funding drive. Uh, but, but, but we could use more funding, period. Okay. I'll do my best to try and make that happen. Is there any oh, is there any last words that you'd like to share with my audience, Dr. Pollock? Well, that was a surprise question. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've gone over. Um, well, yeah, okay. So I've been, I guess, some last words. We've been talking about universities and how they educate people, and textbooks are really important and have been really important to the educational process, and they still are. And the same story is uh, spouted again and again, and I would I, I would love that for for that to change at the university. On the other hand, um, one other um, maybe critique of of the university that's particularly pertinent these days is that most of the students come are coming for if I use the term job training, uh, practical technological at my university for example all the students want to go into um, computer science or engineering of some sort and and the humanities are being practically eliminated from the curriculum and you'd think that someone like myself that i would be enthusiastic about promoting um, all kinds of interest in science and engineering but i think we have to look at um at what's happening to the humanities because the humanities teach us a sense of morality and what's okay and what's not okay. And and universities have been doing this for you know as long as as long as they existed. They're being eliminated. And for me, this is um, terrible because 
the world is in chaos right now. And I don't, I don't have to tell anybody because we all, we all recognize that. But the sense of, uh, you know, moral compass and learning that at the university, um, is, is being bypassed because, because the universities, um, are now uh, teaching mostly technologies because the students are very concerned with earning money. And well, uh, I guess they need to be to learn about earning money, but they also need to learn a sense of morality. And um, for me, I, I deplore this progressive change uh, from the liberal arts um, to technology and science. Being a scientist myself, you, this may surprise you, but I feel strongly about that. So I guess that's my my final word. Uh, I can, yeah, I can sense that. I mean, and you have a strong moral compass. I mean, the work that you're doing, you have to have that inside of you to push through all the adversity that you've had to overcome. And I think if more scientists had that installed in them, perhaps through learning humanities in, in education, uh, then maybe science would be going a different way and the things that you're studying might be more recognized and are carried out frequently by many people. Well, I think you're right. I agree with you. Yeah, would would be the case. Yeah, there needs to be some balance uh, between the two. You know, and money has become such a primary and compelling objective, um, maybe for good reason, that, you know, um, Parents encourage their kids to go avoid the humanities. You know, you you can't earn a living uh, by studying English literature, um, or at least that that's the thought. And um, and so you got to do something that is practical, and therefore, you know, study study electrical engineering or study computer science and such. And that's what the students are doing. They're responding to that. It's a cultural norm that exists right now, but I. I I think it needs to change if we're to survive uh, as human species. So uh, maybe you didn't expect that from me. I don't know. No, I definitely definitely agree with you. And I really appreciate you saying that. I think the world would definitely be a better place. And I mean, the further we move into this technological area of AI and everything's on laptops, and I'm so thankful that I'm able to speak to you right now through this black mirror screen device that I have. But the further we move into age of technology, the further we lose perhaps what it means to be human. I mean, everything has changed. Precisely. Yeah, what it is to be human. And part of being human is to be honest. Um, and, And with AI and other various incentives, when we read a scientific paper, we don't know if it's real and if it's not real. And and when that's the case, you know, there's nothing. You know, we we can't base our understanding on scientific papers that are produced because there are incentives for people to produce scientific papers that don't report the truth, you know? And what's missing is, as you say, the moral compass. Uh, we need that urgently. So I hope that I understand that my voice is not going to make much difference um, or any difference, but I somehow um, hope that we return uh, to that. It's so important. I think it is so important. And I think what's also important is just to remember that we can focus on the things that we can control. And so for me, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of chaos and going on in the world right now, but you kind of have to be that, <laughs> it's kind of funny, you kind of have to be that positive in the negative and, uh, and attract people that are like-minded to you and they're people that you hold, hold dear and 
there are people with moral compasses and people who think the same as you and building that community around yourself is very, very important. And they're hard to find, but they're out there. And the people that listen to my podcast and the people that I have kind of accumulated on my social media accounts, I know that they're going to love everything that you've said and they're going to really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I hope we meet next time I'm around Gold Coast. I would love to. You have to um, get some infrared light and make sure you make it here, hey? (laughs) We'll try. Okay. See you. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Health Standard Podcast. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, please subscribe to the pod and leave a review on the channel. It helps us out a bunch. Just a reminder that we have new episodes being released bi-weekly on a Monday. If you would like to delve deeper in the meantime into circadian and quantum health, please view the links in the show notes and follow Curly Wellness over on Instagram, where I expand on many of the topics covered in today's episode in greater detail. 